You are listening to Three Moves Ahead, the official podcast of FlashofSteel.com. This is episode number 79, and I am your host, Troy Goodfellow. And with me today are my two regular panelists, two of my regular panelists, my most regular panelists, my standbys, uh, freelance writer Julian Murdoch. And he's full of rage. Yes, and not id rage. No, no, not that kind of rage. The strategic rage. Strategic rage. Yes, we're going to get to your rage in a bit. And freelance writer Rob Zachney. Hey, everybody. (laughs) So what is angering Julian now? What has him (laughs) all aflutter and mad at the world? He ran out of gin just before the show. He never runs out of gin. He has a big big gin tree in the back with a tap (laughs) on it. No, that's it is this week's theme game. It is Victoria Two, uh, the epic nineteenth and early twentieth century grand strategy game from Paradox uh, Interactive, designed by Chris King, published uh, by Paradox, a sequel to the first game I was ever paid to review. Really? Yeah, the first so game has a special place in your heart. <laughs> You're just giving it a pass, right? Yeah, exactly. I give it a pass because. What did you give the first one? Uh forget three stars three and a half stars something like that it was for cgm first review i was ever paid to write uh for steve bauman editor for life over there um and still one of the best editors i ever worked for and uh victoria 2 is the unlikely sequel uh it is a game that no one really expected to be made a game where the ceo uh bet his hair that it would not turn a profit and i guess we'll see how that turns out and it is a game that has Julian Murdoch very, very angry. So, Rob, let's start with you before we get to... I just want to leave the anger in the background. I want to let it simmer a bit and then have it explode. Okay. Kind of mid- show. Uh, Rob, why don't you give uh, our listeners who aren't familiar uh, with Victoria the rundown on how it is different uh, from other Paradox games or how it is similar? Um, well, it's it's... <laughs> Superficially similar to um, to EU three. I mean, if, if you've played the European Universalis series, I think you're going to feel uh, very at home in that interface. It's and that that's that's mostly deceptive, though. The uh, the two games are very different. Um, Paradox makes what I, what I think of as they're part strategy games, part history sim, part history simulators. Um, there's very there's very detailed modeling going on underneath the hood of these games. Um, Victoria 2, I think, is much more a history simulator. It's a little miniature world um, with just a mind-boggling amount of detail. Um, A lot of things happening independently um, and interacting with each other within that game. Um, And you can can see how things are influencing each other. Like, uh, it goes down to, you know, um, what does a North German factory worker feel about germany right now what's he what's on his mind um it's like a sim game meets european universalis um and it's both awesome and terrifying <laughs> awesome and terrifying does that capture your experience I, uh julian i i, I want to hear what you think is awesome that's before i get into my little rant about this i want to hear what you think is awesome i want you to give me the give me the the sell on why it should be a great game all right. Um, yeah. So when I say this game is awesome, I don't mean that in an entirely positive way. Like, I mean, I, I behold this game with with you know an air of wonderment. Um, I've never seen anything quite like this. Uh, Paradox approached Victoria Two with 
just a tremendous amount of conviction. They they made a game that was going to model as you know they were going to simulate as much of 19th century politics and economics um, as they possibly could, regardless of whether or not they thought you would enjoy that. Um, <laughs> you know your your you know your enjoyment. I feel was really entirely optional to this uh, to this project, <laughs> um, but in exchange for you know their almost complete indifference to its playability as a strategy game, um, you know it's it's almost like they've given you the 19th century in a bottle. You know, I mean, you can't reach in there and play with it very easily, um, but it, it certainly is something to marvel at. So, so I, I have to admit, I did not manage to put a lot of hours into this game actually playing the game. I did, in the end, put about five hours into trying to play this game, of which I would say half of that was stymied by endless crashes and reboots, which I gather neither one of you had that experience. So maybe I'm some weird outlier, although my little Windows 7 machine has never had a problem with a game before. And I found um, it remarkably stable. I mean, for I, Paradox, game remarkably stable. Yeah, I didn't have any crashes. I did have uh, missing text and a couple messages. Like there were little bugs like that, but no instability. Right. Yeah, I mean, my problems ranged from just outright, oh, you were playing a game, now you're not playing a game, crash to desktops, to uh, dialogues boxes would frequently pop up with no way to close them. Like the little box that would say confirm oh. or okay oh would just not actually be there. Uh, That's so, kind of so problem in this game. <laughs> yeah, because it does pop up a dialogue box every 11 seconds. I think there's some sort of internal logic that if you haven't been bothered for five seconds, it has to ask you a question. But, but you, you can customize all that. I but well, I was going to get to that. So right. I, I will give I will give these guys credit for one thing: the manual and the strategy guide are really quite good. Um, in that they, I think they lay bare the whole set of systems quite nicely. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I actually, I, I read both the manual and the strategy guide on an airplane before, before I even fired up and ins- installed and fired up the game. So I, I, I really did do that. And I was like, this is great. I'm really getting into the manual. I hadn't really read the manual for EU and EU3. Um, or U2 and U3, but uh, you know, I had gone back to it once in a while. So I knew that, that generally Paradox does a pretty good job in manuals, but I was like, this, this is great. It's not only explaining to me what is clearly a complex game, uh, but it's actually giving me some context for it as well, which I appreciated. Um, you know, the problem that I couldn't play the game for more than a half an hour before I would just end up with some game ending bug, like a dialogue box you could not close to which the only response was to, you know, essentially eject the game and start all over again, which was really exciting. Um, the thing that's mind-boggling about this game, and they sort of admit this in the manual and the strategy guide, is that there's so much detail in there, yet they leave it really up to you to try to figure out what's actually important, right? So, you know, the, I think the comparisons to EU... Yeah, it. So it's sort of amazing to me that there's this mind-boggling, mind-bogglingly complex detailed system um, where, where literally, I mean, in some of the screens, like I counted once cause I was bitter. The population screen for an average little area 
has well over 300 pieces of information in it. If you actually count all the different pie slices and pieces of statistics, uh, and, you know, all the different population pieces, um, and almost every one of those can, you can like click your way into and get even more information about yeah. the system underneath that. So you can figure out that your, you know, your regiment in some corner of the world needs 0.0006 gallons of booze a day or whatever <laughs> in order to keep them at, at their, you know, the lifestyle of which they become accustomed. Um, but there's really almost no attempt to really tell you what's important and what your decisions should really be. In a game like EU, there's a lot of complexity there. There's no question about that. And that's definitely a Grognardian game. But okay. it's always pretty obvious what's important. You may be bad at it. You may not be looking at the information. You may not be micromanaging the way you should, whatever. Right. But you kind of always know what's important. Like, oh, I'm losing a battle on this front. That's probably what I should focus on now. Right. In this game, you start some battle off in a corner and secretly you could be losing like crazy because you're not paying attention to the economy of southern Texas. And and I found that just to be infuriating. So I'm curious if you guys sort of got beyond that to the point where you sort of reached that Sims-like level of mastery where you kind of intuitively knew where, where you needed to be at a given moment in time. Not really. I think a lot depends on the <laughs> size of your empire. I mean, I tweeted this uh, uh, when I was doing the review, I'm reviewing it for PC Gamer, that you know it's it's more fun to you know make a decision than to nudge things in specific directions, and that's really Victoria's design is about nudging things in directions. Um, Europa Universalis Three is great because it has the whole mission thing, so it gives you a mission and there's a penalty if you don't if you don't complete it, so you got to do that. It, it gives you direction. Hearts of Iron 3, tons of directions. World War II, you know what you got to do. You got to kill a bunch of Nazis. And everyone's cool with killing a bunch of Nazis. Uh, so you have direction. You know what you're supposed to do. Even if it's a completely mind-boggling mess, you know that you do whatever you can to get to that goal. So you learn the systems for that goal. Victoria 2 really isn't about that because it doesn't give you much direction at all. It gives you all of these systems. Wonderful. Deep systems any of which, are kind any of of which could be a game by themselves i mean yeah. that's the thing that sort of blows me away is like the trade system by itself could be an entire game yeah i mean and and they they realize how many systems there are by automating so many of them i mean if you thought that this was a micromanagement nightmare don't go back and play the first one because the first one <laughs> would freaking blow your brains out because you had at least in this one you know the populations will move up and down uh, in their class on their own they'll get to where they want to be if you want more uh, soldiers you just spend more money in the military and they'll become soldiers first Victoria you had to make people soldiers so you had to barrel down and decide who's going to be a soldier and who's not uh, who's going to be a craftsman and who's not oh my god uh, this one is a really about nudging things in specific directions. You have to, I want to pursue a, an economic direction. So what types of industries do I want to promote? For a lot of the game, you are not building factories. You're asking other people to build factories. You're promoting them to build factories. So you but have to make sure the capitalists right. have enough money so you can't overtax them. And you have to make sure you have the right resources so they can do it. And you have to make sure that you have the money in your account to buy the resources that they need that you don't produce at home. Uh, so it's, it's all about you know pushing things, pushing things, promoting them, but not really taking a whole lot of firm decisions. And I like Victoria. I give it a mostly positive review uh, in PC Gamer because I think it really does have some great design elements. But I don't like it as much as Hearts of Iron 3, which will sound like heresy uh, to a lot of Paradox fans out there, because there isn't that direction. There, it really is just saying, like Rob said, here's the 19th century. 
have fun. Um, so I never really felt overwhelmed as much as I did puzzled as what I'm supposed to be doing next. Well, but but uh, how can you not? Feel, I mean, I guess I guess maybe the secret to this game is to ignore most of it because it's like you pop open a trade screen, yeah, and and you know and. There can be, I don't think I'm exaggerating, there could be a few hundred goods in the game going yep. on at a given time between, you know, dozens and dozens of consumer products and stuff your factories are making and your population's needs. And, you know, you've got sheep and beer and cotton and yep. barley. And I mean, it's such an overwhelming number. And every single one of these, just to focus on the economy for a minute, every single yep. one of these items is influenced by about 12 different things on its own as far yep. as whether that's what gets produced versus something else and whether it's making this part of your population happy or not. And so it takes some some core concepts that I think we all like in games with a rich economic system about really you know having to focus on supply and demand and internal versus external need and production versus gathering. And it takes some basic strategic concepts that are really fun to play with. Mm -hmm. And it, it drives them to such an exhausting level of detail that you're literally focused on the third decimal place of production, uh, you know, of you know, making 1.295 somethings. The, the beauty and crime of Ikaria 2 is that unless you're really a hardcore player, you can ignore so much of that. You really don't need to pay attention to the trade screen all that much because it's done relatively automatically. You're not buying the goods. Other people are buying the goods. You have to set up a stockpile uh, to buy specific things. Like if you don't, if you're not producing weapons and you need soldiers, you have to go out there and buy the weapons yourself. So that's something. But generally, for the most part, if you're playing France or Prussia or Russia or Britain, or the U.S., that stuff will generally take care of itself. However, if it can take care of itself, why do I need all of that detail? So it's really a tough design decision. Well, and I think it goes back to, um, oh, God, what was that what was the Matrix game? Uh, we, Distant Worlds, right? Yeah. Um, where if, if, you're going to have, if you're going to have a system automate all these important, um, you know, all these important controls, all these important systems, um, you, really, you really need to earn and keep the player's trust. Um, and so when I open up my production window, because uh, the, you, you can open up your national production window, it shows you what all your factories in the country are doing right now. Um, and you'll see what inputs they need to produce their product and uh, what sort of business they're doing. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. When I open that up and I see that my ammunition factory, which needs like um, you know, coal and uh, sulfur, uh, to produce to produce uh, ammunition for my for my troops. When I see that it doesn't have sulfur, um, and day in day out it never has sulfur, so this this factory is idling um, and hemorrhaging money, um, and it's a vital national industry. Um, I'm asking myself, why the hell does this factory not have sulfur? Why isn't the computer taking care of this? I go to my trade screen. Um, there's no sulfur in the national stockpile. I place orders for you know more sulfur, uh, but for for whatever reason, I cannot consistently guarantee that that factory is going to get supplies, and I don't know why. The other thing is there are so many variables going on, and you really have no sense of context or magnitude for any of them. Yeah. Um, the research tree um, is going to tell you, know, you research broad topics, um, you know, in economics, uh, you know, culture, uh, army, navy, that sort of thing. Each, each tech you research comes with a number of smaller sub-discoveries, um, and they will have little effects, like it will improve your, improve your factory input efficiency by 0.1% or something like that. 
I have no idea what the hell that means. Like, I, there are so many little numbers like that. Minuscule improvements in efficiency, um, in production. That there's no real sense of context for them. Um, it's not entirely clear what role they're having in what's happening in the game. And there are so many variables mm-hmm. affecting each thing I'm interested in that isolating cause and effect is damn near impossible. And yeah. that's the essence of strategy. So what we have here is a model that's so complex that, I mean, for my money, I think it makes actual strategy, strategy basically impossible in a lot of important areas. Economic management, are you mismanaging it? Or are you just not seeing what's going wrong? You yeah, know, it's there. It, it could be either. Um, and with this system, unless you're unless you're willing to study every aspect of Victorian, basically make it make it your project. Uh, maybe do your dissertation on Victoria too, which a lot of people are going to do. I mean, one thing about these paradox, they're they're fan community. There are people who are going to be studying this, and they'll understand what that point one actually does. Yeah. Well, but, yeah, and I mean, I mean, you, you, you guys have clearly put more time into the game. So explain, like, walk me through one thing that, that was baffling to me. So let's just take uh, the technology tree, which is as complicated as the technology tree pretty much in any strategy game I've ever played. Um, I think that's reasonably fair. Um, and so, you know, you've got, well, I don't remember what they are, army, commerce, culture, you know, you have basic yes, categories to research down. Yep. Um so so inside, I remember this, inside like the army tree, you have individual research trees for things like advancing your light armaments from muzzle loaders to breech loaders or advancing your military science to the point where you understand statistics. I mean, incredibly detailed decisions about where to put your resources within the idea of, oh, I'm going to make my army better. Yep. Can you actually figure out how those play out in a particular battle? Because the battles to me largely seem to be a matter of I send this unit up against that unit. Lots of crazy crap happens that I don't understand. And I'm not really sure whether I won yeah, you, because I got breach loaders first. You, you can see those uh, play out if you have uh, especially I mean, I've playing the Russians. I had, you know, larger armies get completely shellacked by more organized British armies. And you can see the bonuses if you click on a battle. Uh, you can see all the bonuses and what's playing out, and you can see the differences the weapons do make, or that organization makes, or that supply stuff makes. The military technology is very important, uh, and it's certainly much more obvious what the effect is than many of the uh, prestige effects of culture. I mean, so your prestige gains 2%, that's great. I mean, I'm losing prestige for every stupid colonial war I declare, so a 2% bonus is exactly going to help me get out of Britain's doghouse for a while. Um, but the military stuff, uh, the organization bonuses, those are really quite important, and you can see them play out. And you, you do see you know, larger, more primitive armies get hammered because they don't have as much organization, they don't have as much leadership, or they don't have be- as good weapons. Um, so you do see all of that play out. With, with some of the stuff, like, I mean, if you're the first guy to breech-loaded rifles... Um, you were going to notice the difference that makes if you're attacking somebody who's using muzzle loaders. I mean, you're, you're going to be basically it's going to be uh, the Battle of Conigrats like every week, where you you know 500, you lose 500, they lose 5,000. That's awesome. But little things like um, just little tweaks to supply consumption, yep. um, changes to combat with combat with, um, you know, combat with decides how many how many how many guns you have pointed basically. 
Right, but it's it's there's there's a lot of these these little minute effects that are they're very hard parts. The, the the broad strokes you definitely notice. Yeah. Um, but as with a lot of things, it's, but the, but we should emphasize here: the military tree is happily one of the areas where the cause and effect is a little clearer. I mean, for Victoria yep. show, it's you know, crystal clear um, compared to the effects of other stuff. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the political stuff going on in Victoria too, because really, in many ways, the political system is kind of the star. Because the idea of Victoria too is you start, you know, generally as a monarchy of some sort, and as your people become more aware of things, as they mature politically, they'll start making demands on you. They will start changing from very conservative people to more liberal people to communists to socialists. Be more welcome to have political reforms like a lot of voting. Or open voting or uh, social reforms. They want pensions. They want shorter work days. You see the Industrial Revolution unfold in front of you. How well did you think? Did you experience that at all, Julian? Did you get far enough to notice no, that? No, I never work? managed to get a game. I mean, to me, I think I would have had to have a game actually run for three or four hours okay. straight to get to that point. I mean, I, I saw the systems. <clears throat> I saw how my populations were evolving and how their opinions were changing. And it all seemed really cool. And I would have loved to have gotten to the point where I could you know, see that I was effectively, you know, engendering change in a population in a way that was, you know, positive for the country. I see how that's underneath the hood. I'm right. curious to hear whether or not it actually ever works. Did it ever really work for you, Rob? Um, it worked because I wanted it to work. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Want to explain that? Um, well, I mean, my first game, my, 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 the way I familiarize myself with any European strategy game is I look for Prussia. Where is Prussia? That's, that's going to be, you know, that's, that's what I know. Um, so I can sort of follow the story from there. And as Prussia, you begin as um, an absolute monarchy. And you've got, you know, the, the Prussian Landtag. It's, it's, a, it's an appointed body of aristocrats. They're, they're yes men. Um, and the, the, the cool thing, I will say this, the very cool thing, and I think they had this in Victoria 1, um, is that what really matters is the upper house um, in your country. The upper house, the Senate, the House of Lords, they're the ones who basically have veto power on liberalizing reforms. Um, doesn't matter what the lower house wants. The upper house can always block it. So what's interesting is it tracks the currents of opinion in the upper house and then juxtaposes that with the voters at large. Um, and then even beyond the voters, you've got the population as a whole. So you get this interesting balance between, um, you know, what do the elites actually believe? What do the people who appoint them, who elect them, believe? And then what about all that non-voting, possibly that non-voting majority? What do they think? And you get dangerous gaps opening up in opinion. Um, and as Prussia, I mean, I was running a pretty, um, you know, conservative dictatorship, and I started getting a lot of rebellions, and there's a lot of clamor for liberal reform. But I also had an army, and that seemed to trump pretty much everything. The army never, the army never wavered. Um, they were always willing to ride down peasants who got up in a, um, you know, march in the cities. Um, and so for a long time there, the, you know, the, the revolution of 1848 comes and goes, and it doesn't even affect me. I barely notice it. Um, 
I'm still there as an absolute monarchy. And then just on my own, I decide, well, it would be kind of nice to begin liberalizing and maybe modernizing the country a bit. And then I start advancing liberal causes, um, you know, promoting liberal opinion among the people. And I slowly start to see changes work throughout the country. So that's what I mean. It worked because I kind of wanted to see some yeah. of these changes and I wanted the system to work. It needn't have, I don't think. Yeah, I kind of had the same experience. Uh, in it's a great design, and I think part of the problem is that uh, the, opinion, the opinions don't take, or like you said, the, the army can just go riding roughshod, nailing things down. Um, one big problem is there are so many revolts, and they're so easily put down, because of they have an issue with the design, where craftsmen are demanding like 25 pieces of grains. So they're always starving. You ever wonder why you couldn't feed all of your middle class? It's because they have the craftsmen demanding five times more than anybody else. I could never get all the craftsmen employed. That was yeah, just... you couldn't. And because they don't have enough goods and there aren't enough factories and there are a lot of them, uh, though they're always starving. And why anyone wants to be a craftsman, I don't know. So this means these guys are always dissatisfied. They tend to be liberal. So you'll have Jacobin revolts all over the place. I bet you had Jacobin revolts all over the place, right, Rob? Oh, yeah. Always the Jacobins. Always the Jacobins. So then you, you can, can kill a bunch of them. You suppress them. And that weakens them for a bit. Uh, but they're never a huge voting block. They're never having this, this, the power you want them to have to actually be demanding things. They're really just running around, uh, blowing up buildings or whatever, and hiring guns uh, to kill the army. Um, and I, like you, never really had a chance to get a whole lot of political reforms. So I didn't need to. Um, the revolts were never serious. They were never life-threatening. They were small, uh, 3,000 troops here, 3,000 troops there. They could be all across the country. It doesn't matter. So you have this great and beautifully detailed political system that when it works, and it works rarely, but you can see it. <laughs> I, 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 I've seen it. I've seen it work in Spain. I saw it work uh, in the United States. You can see it. And it's a really nice, deft, wonderful modeling of how populations change and shift uh, their opinions. And it's a, really a work of art. But so many countries will never have to go through this. And maybe you can say that's right. Maybe, you know, why should Russia liberalize? It shouldn't. It never did, really. Until well, it was too late. But for so much of the time, like you, Rob, you really have to force it. You really say, I want to have a liberal state. Because here I am sitting back um, in my comfortable 21st century world knowing that people should have better work hours. Yeah. Uh, but you can only do it if you can convince you know, the upper house to do it and the people that want it. Uh, you never get a majority wanting these things. Uh, I had I had a couple weird things happen to begin with. Like for some reason, liberals kept getting stronger in the upper house. Um, but I don't really know why this is happening. Like it, it's an appointed house, basically, right? Like right. the king, the, the king should have a say over what what's going into the house. But it's starting to liberalize, kind of of its own volition. So I kind of felt like the game was pushing me. And you can say, well, that's modeling changing opinions in the upper class, which historically right. happened. Okay, but I don't really see the mechanism. Right. Uh, but the other thing is that it's 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 really strange to me that you've got this remarkable system for modeling what people are feeling and doing and thinking um like you were saying like you were saying julian um you know you go into the population screen and all your people are just sitting there like you know divided by class and occupation and you can see how life is going for them and then you can subdivide it by ethnicity you know well how are polish factory workers doing these <laughs> days um 
you know how how are how are you how need are to know you need to know how the Polish factory workers and, are doing and 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 what religion are they right well, should, should I be so paying more this, attention to my missionaries yeah yeah so you got this incredible system in there modeling all these all these complicated and interrelated factors mm-hmm. but then how do they how do they approach political change a bunch of assholes with guns pop up on the map and your professionalized army crushes them like bugs and I don't understand. How a game that's made with such obvious like love for history and regard for the period decides that the mechanism is going to be basically peasant revolts. Yeah. Um, it's the same. It's the same way it was in EU three, but in EU three it makes sense because the Middle Ages are marked by a lot of peasant revolts and uppity nobles rebelling against the king. But the Victorian era, really, like yeah. strikes. You get you get a lot of strikes. You also get a lot of soldiers refusing orders. You get kings who are terrified of their officer corps, um, and for some reason, all that's missing. And you just yeah. get unruly mobs in the streets that you can put down. And so, what you're saying there, Troy, is that yeah, Russia doesn't. Russia didn't liberalize um, really, or they didn't liberalize in time. Right. But eventually, the regime falls because it just it collapses under its own weight, and right. the people who supported it no longer did. Right. I don't see how Victoria is ever going to bring that across. Yeah, I really don't. And they even have special flags for all the regimes you'll never see. They have communist flags <laughs> for every country. They have fascist flags for every country. Because it could happen. Right. Because well, it could theoretically. Uh, you have to force it to happen. Uh, but well, it's and I, I mean, you have a point there, Rob. It's there really isn't. There's this great love for the 19th century world uh, and all these 19th century things. You know, the scramble for Africa and the weakness of China and the opening of Japan and uh, industrialization. You know, the birth of the railroad and all these impressionism. You can discover impressionism for God's sakes. Um, but uh, yeah, there really isn't. Political change doesn't come; it comes gradually in some countries, and not so much in others. And but most of the time, you have to wait for a country to fall apart. The big problem is the effect this has on the AI, because the AI is going through the same trouble you are, and the AI is completely incapable of handling revolts properly. Waits until they're too big most of the time before dealing with it. So you know, Britain can be kicking my ass in a war, which it does quite regularly because it's freaking Great Britain. Um, but all I have to do is wait for the revolts. I wait for the inevitable Jacobin revolts, and they'll eventually, you know, say, "Well, let's just call this a draw." Well, and see, I think uh, at least I noticed it's countries that historically weren't that fucked up yeah. that are the most afflicted by revolts. I mean, looking at Russia, Tsarist Russia, and oh my God, I mean, you know, things are business is booming. Yeah. Um, you know, on the other across Russia, um, they aren't liberalizing. They're pressing the hell out of their serfs. Doesn't matter. Nobody seems to care. Britain, oh my God, it's. I mean, they're setting up the guillotine in Piccadilly Square. Cats and dogs are sleeping together. It's a real mess <laughs> yeah. in Britain. Uh, whereas, yeah, I mean, Russia. I was playing my Russian game by like, 1850 at the second highest industrial score. Oh my God. Uh, well, which is kind of because. It did, the people weren't going to do much. They, they could, I could easily move them along up the uh, craftsman uh, ladder. Um, it was a piece of cake. Well, if we're talking about the AI, yep. we got to talk about the diplomacy, too, because yep. that was another huge disappointment for me. Because oh, yes? I think I think Europa Universalis III, um, by the time of the final expansion, has... Uh, Heir to the Throne. Yeah. One of the best expansions. Has, absolutely. And I think that is the best... The, the best diplomatic game I've ever seen in a strategy game. Oh, I really? Mean, it's just, 
Oh, it's it's absolutely superb. Like eventually, like the longer the game goes on, um, the game just can't compete with you know a player's control over game over a hundred centuries. But so much of what you can do in that dipl- diplomatic system mm-hmm. um, is just is, is so interesting, and there's there's so many opportunities there, and it, it it's really coherent. With Victoria, and this should be a great period, right? I mean, it's the classical period for the balance of power. Um, great statesmen seem to be everywhere. Um, I could not. I saw the AI making a lot of weird foreign policy decisions, and really, I couldn't find the point of ninety percent of the options in the diplomatic in the diplomatic window, such as. Um, you know, I mean. Basically, I spent a lot of time like trying to bring nations into my sphere of influence, right? So I'm Prussia, and I'm trying to bring the lesser German states into my orbit, and France and Austria are sort of fighting over them. But honestly, I can't tell you really what benefit came from what what noticeable benefit came from having a nation in my sphere of influence. Um, it just it was a, it was a bone to fight over, and maybe they're making some sort of clever comment about imperialism. I don't know. Um, but it, it just it affects your prestige, and your prestige affects where you how quickly you can buy goods. Right, but it just it, it but it all seemed really minuscule. It all seemed really mm-hmm. trivial. Um, the other thing is great power relations. Uh, pretty much boiled down to me trying to make friends with everybody. I use that improve relations button. Oh, it's that easy. Just click improve relations, and things are going to be marginally better between you and the other guy. Yeah. Um, and I fi- I just found that crushingly disappointing. Yeah, it's, the AI makes some odd decisions. Uh, once again, my Russia game, the one I spent the most time on, so I'm talking about it so much. I also played as France and the UK and the US and a couple of minor powers. Um, I swallowed up Prussia for the most part. Bastard. Prussia and, Austria, <laughs> Prussia and Austria kept fighting wars, so I decided, well, I'll take Poland and I'll take Pomerania uh, while Prussia's distracted. Uh, and, of course, Britain hates this. Britain like declares war like a million times because uh, I'm a threat. But the good old emperor of Austria-Hungary never said boo. Didn't care. Here I was, clearly a threat on his border, uh, swallowing up some very prime real estate, including some German states, and Austria did not seem to care or notice. Now, you compare this to EU3, where each country has nations they consider to be threats or rivals, and this changes through the game. Uh, It's a way to model balance of power. So you have... The elements of this is somebody I've got to be afraid of. Uh, this is somebody that uh, who my relations will be a little bit more tense with. So you really have to work to keep these great power relations up. And because uh, Victoria too has the whole great power idea, and your great nations can fall into and out of great power status. Right. Uh, and being a great power allows you to build a sphere of influence. Of great being great power gives you more options diplomatically, things that minor powers can't do. Which is a really nice touch, you know, really drawing a line between, you know, there's a time when great great powers have different rules than everybody else. And yeah. I love that Victoria 2 does this when other games don't. That, you know, Japan has to earn its place at the table. It's not just going to show up, conquer a bunch of land, and say, well, I'm big now, pay attention to me. Other countries have to respect you based on military power, prestige, and industrial power. <laughs> great way of modeling it. But with Great power relations being so, with nations dropping in and out all the time, you can have a great alliance with one country as a minor power. It can be in your sphere of influence. Then all of a sudden, Belgium becomes a great power <laughs> because it built a railroad. 
Uh, don't know why Belgium always ends up being great power. It makes no sense to me, but Belgium always pops up there. It's the number eight or nine country. Uh, so it's out of your sphere of influence, so you can build its own sphere of influence, usually with the Netherlands, and you're fighting it there. There's all this bouncing around. Um, so even that, even that line gets a little bit blurred at times. Uh, I liked the sphere of influence mechanic. I really did. Uh, I like how it does capture the gamesmanship over, this is a country that is, you know, part of my territory. It means I can, I can park my troops there without much penalty. I can use its ports. Uh, if you declare war on it, then I can come after you. This whole idea that, you know, as a great power, I have my own interests to protect. I, I really like that idea, and I thought they modeled it relatively well. It's a repetitive game. It's a repetitive mini-game. Uh, always kicking out the bad guys and putting your guys in, and I wish it was a little bit more interactive. And it's kind of weird you have a lot of uh, events triggering that might make you... Uh, and some of the events uh, can trigger that can actually make you reconsider your sphere of influence. For example, as France, repeatedly... I mean, Egypt's in my sphere of influence, which is great, because I can't have the Suez Canal. Then uh, Egyptians, I get an event, Egyptians attack my concession there, attack the embassy. Kind of a boxer rebellion type thing. Right. So do I then declare war on Egypt, which is in my sphere of influence? I could get a quick land grab, because it's going to fall out of my sphere, but there's also a war I might not want to fight right now. Uh, what exactly am I supposed to be doing here? And I really like how these decisions over what, where you want your interests to be can sometimes play up against all these historical events they've modeled. Assu- assuming you've realized that's a decision you should be focused on. Yes. Right? That's, assuming, that's, assuming that's you've the thought key of it. thing, yes. right? Because yeah. meanwhile, on the back end of your empire, something's gone horribly wrong that you weren't paying attention to, most likely. Almost certainly. <laughs> uh, in my case, it was usually the uh, British landing at Sevastopol. Right. Let, let me ask a couple questions from you two yeah. guys who clearly have more viable opinions on this game, having gotten more real gameplay in it than I did. Do you think this game would be better off with one of the two fixes? Either A... Break this thing up into three different games and charge $15 each, right? Make make a game out of the political system. Make a game out of the trade system. Mm-hmm. Or with, like, true one-button automation so that you could say, I want to play with a competent AI worrying about all of these parts of the game for me, and I'm only going to focus on this other part of the game. Do you think either one of those is viable for this game? Oh, yeah. Um, you can't break it up. I think no. so much of the pleasure it derives from watching the parts. You may not understand how they fit together, but you know they do. <laughs> Trust him. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, what about uh, the issue about, about true automation, where you could say, I'm really just going to play the political part of this game. And, and have the other part competently run? Or is it just too intertwined that the only way to play this game is to bite the whole thing off? Yeah, I just don't think there's enough independent game there in each of the systems. I think that's yeah. the problem. That Each of the systems are all great and interesting, but no one of them really stands alone as a game, I think. I mean, the economic game might, but even then, it, you have to add a lot more to it. I mean, it, I think you can make a great game out of industrializing a country the of industrialization. This isn't it. It's still too hands-off. Right. And uh, 
just I mean, to, just to interject, I mean, my problem with the diplomacy window was I could bring little nations into my orbit, but I never felt like I could really throw my weight around with them. Like I didn't feel I could really, you know, force them to do things like a great power can. Um, and I also never felt like I was like constructing grand alliances and you know, sort of dividing Europe up among the powers. I never felt like any of that was happening. It was all these weird infinitesimal little binary choices. You know, do mm-hmm. I want to make slightly better friends with uh, you know England today? Okay, well they hate me slightly less. Great. Uh, but it, but it, you know it just it it didn't really hang together. <laughs> there there wasn't. I didn't feel like I was constructing a foreign policy. I felt like I was parachuting in, making some tiny adjustment, and right. then coming right back out. And that's I think kind of how the whole game is. So so given those answers, allow me to make the most heretical statement I will ever make about a strategy game on this podcast, and which perhaps may generate so much hate mail I will never be invited back. With all of these things in the corners and with the recognition that there is clearly a lot of intelligence and thoughtful design that has been put behind this, mm-hmm. this game reminds me of nothing so much, in my personal experience, as a Derek Smart game. Right? This, this reminds me of Battlecruiser Millennium, right? where you've got a billion variables and choices that you could be focused on at any given mo- moment in time. No idea which one you should focus on, and it crashes every 25 minutes. That's, that's, <laughs> I mean, granted, you guys didn't have the crash experience, but if you imagine you had my crash every 25 minutes experience. Yeah. Well, here's my analogy. I mean, have you, have you ever seen, um, have, we, have we all seen Wonder Boys? Yes. Yeah. 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 Remember that novel he's writing? The one he's been working on for years and years and years? And one day his best student reads it. Um, and she just says to him, you know, I, I feel like you, you you were so you were so caught up, you know, looking looking at all these choices, you ended up you you made no choices. Um, that's that's kind of how I feel. Like I mean, it's like everything's in here, but then it's like neither I nor Paradox really knew where to put the focus. This is really a problem with the Victorian age, and I think part of the problem is they want this game to perfectly mirror what that period is about. Um, they want to have everything. Uh, they want to have industrialization. They want to have politics. They want to have art and culture. They want to have this explosion of empire. They want to have uh, colonial battles. They want, to have, they want to have all of this stuff and all these wonderful systems which don't quite fit together perfectly. Um, and that very breadth, which is in many ways... I think Chris King did a great job in designing by saying, okay, you don't have to worry about that. The AI can take care of that. And I think he made some really smart choices along the way, saying that these things you don't have to worry about. But by making the game so big, and the 19th century is so big, you might say, well, that's not as big as, you know, from 1400 to 1800 in Europe Universe House 3, but that game doesn't ask you to capture really religious reformation debates. You don't have to choose whether you're going to be an Anabaptist or a Lutheran. Or, or whether or not to well, grow wheat or barley. Well, more than that, though, I mean, you know, it's, yeah, I mean, chronologically, it, it's temporally, it's not as big. Yeah. But the thing is, in a game as France, I'm rarely looking beyond England and Western Germany. I mean, right. like, you know, the world is very small in EU3. There's a huge world beyond what you're concerned with. Yeah. But you don't have to care. Victorian age, you do. Yeah, you have to care about you know who's going to be grabbing Africa. You have to care about who's. I mean, if you're if, if you're Britain, you're all over the place. 
you end up in these stupid, strange little wars. I'm not sure how, as France, I ended up conquering half of Bolivia. I forget how that happened. The president was in some drunken rage or something. All of a sudden, I own Bolivia. <laughs> Seriously, I forgot. I, I, I got an alliance with Argentina, I think. I'm not sure why Argentina wanted me to be their ally, but I did. And then Bolivia declared war in Argentina. Because so they have class. They have taste, Troy. That's why. Yeah. So I invaded Bolivia and took a couple of provinces, and I kept rebelling, and I kept forgetting it was rebelling because it was so far away. There we go. Because I was so focused on everything else. Uh, and I said, wait, wait a minute, why am I losing all these troops? Why are they all dying? Um, and there they are, dying in Bolivia, because some stupid Jacobins just would not die. Jacobininca, or whatever. Uh, I think that the 19th century is just, there's just too much of it here. Um, and there are attempts to capture it and model it, I don't want to say this is a bad game. I like Victoria 2. I'm giving it a positive review. But I do think it's almost too big and too unmanageable. And even though I think it has, as Julian said, it's got a good manual, it does. A good strategy guide, it does. It is the best tutorials Paradox has ever done. And they suck at tutorials. It is their best tutorials they've ever made. And I'm quite pleased with them. And it is still the most unapproachable, unappealing of their series. Um, if you can do all of that and still you know, make this a mess, I mean, Julian, you're, you're not usually an idiot, so <laughs> I assume you can figure this out, given the right materials. And uh, I was actually excited to play this game after having yeah. read the manual and the strategy yeah. guide. Yeah, and there's, uh, there's quite a bit here, and I think I, I, I do really want you to beat away at it. I, th- I think there really is a kernel of a good design here. I couldn't really say that the first Victoria, where there, was a, there was a kernel of a good idea, but not necessarily a good design. I think there's some good design things going on here, but they really, need to fi- they really need to fix the rebellions. They need to have, I mean, I think, Rob, you're right, they have, need to have sphere of influence mean something more. Uh, then you know I can park my troops there. I'm not. You know they shouldn't make you demand territory or something because they're in your sphere of influence. They're not your satellite. Uh, they're a country you push around a bit, but you don't own. Uh, so there's that sort of thing going on. But it's I like it, but there's still some work to be done. And I wish it was a game more about making clear decisions and giving you clear options. Do I do this or do I not? Instead of here's a place with iron. <laughs> what yeah. are you going to do with it? And then you have to decide what you want to do with it. Um, some countries have more options than others. Um, you can build railroads if you have a certain economy, but not factories. No idea how that works. Um, I think you know there's there's a good game here. And I'm not, Rob, you'll be writing a review for Game Shark, I believe. Uh, I already filed it. Already uh, filed it. Should be it. going up uh, tomorrow or you know sometime this week. Good. Well, when it goes up, I will certainly link to it. Uh, mine will be in PC Gamer, so you'll have to wait until it is in print uh, before you can read it, and then I will post some more thoughts about it on the blog uh, once that review is in print. I will not uh, be reviewing this game. You will not be reviewing this game. Are you sure? Yeah, you know what a review whore I am. I just crank those puppies out. Yeah, I know. I mean, <laughs> it's what I'm known for: review after review after review. You've have you ever reviewed a game, Julian? You're such a lucky man. <laughs> lucky, lucky, lucky man. Um, is there anything else you want to say about Victoria 2 before we change topics for a bit? Um, well, you know, I, I will throw in one thing that I, that I kind of liked as, as a grognard. Um, I actually found fighting the wars to be a fair bit of fun. Oh, yes? <laughs> I, I really did. Like, I, I mean, I wish they'd made organizing your armies a little easier. 
because I think you do have a problem where you've got clashes of troops that are so huge um, that, I mean, you, you want huge armies, but having those armies travel together is bigger than any province can sustain. Uh, but it does create this really cool thing where you're breaking your army down into like core or wings, and you're trying to coordinate these really complicated maneuvers. Um, you know, breaking up into detail and then converge somebody like a ton, you know, land on like a ton of bricks, kick their ass, and get out before the enemy can concentrate. And I mean, it's simple, but it didn't really get old for me. Like I loved fighting wars. Um, so I mean, as as a pretty simple war game, it kind of worked for me. Yeah, there's a lot to be said for it. It's a war game, um, especially as you have so many different types of troops, which re- all each require different needs. Each have uh, like guards need to have fancy uniforms. Their elite troops need to have fancy uniforms. You need to have luxury clothing for them, uh, and they fight better, uh, but they're expensive. And you need luxury clothes, which costs quite a bit, especially if you're, you know, Greece and not making many luxury clothes. Uh, and the military, the, the, the war game can be fun. And once you build railroads, your troops can just zip along the country really quickly, which is nice for all those Jacobin revolts. You, know, you can just zip along and kill them all constantly. It, um, the AI is actually pretty decent at fighting it, too. Oh, uh, really consistent. At least this time, you know, it knows how to do amphibious landings, which has generally been a problem in many games. The Total War and the uh, uh, Paradox games have always sucked at uh, amphibious landings. But hey, the the British kept coming, uh, landing in the Baltic and landing in the Black Sea. And the AI does a pretty decent job of the military stuff, so I'm very happy with. What the AI does not do, what it really has to do, is if it's winning a war, it never expands its war goals. One of the great things about Victoria is you, you have to choose a war goal, just like you did uh, in European Universalis Three and Heir to the Throne, a reason for the war. And you choose the war goal and just fulfill it in order to not have your people get mad at you. If you're doing really well in the war, you could add a new goal. Say, I've, well, I thought I was just doing this to liberate Poland, but guess what? I think I want to liberate Pomerania, too. So you add that war goal. It's expensive. It makes other countries hate you more, because this is an era of limited war. This isn't about total war yet. It's about limited war. Uh, so your wars have to have purpose and meaning, and you have to fulfill those goals. The AI never adds a war goal. And that's problematic, because it can be... Austria can be, you know, nailing Prussia to the wall or vice versa, and they're always fighting with the same thing, the hegemony over the German people, and no one ever adds a war goal. And I think that's the AI needs to be more aggressive in that, in, you know, really pushing you uh, to cave in, say, well, it has like five war goals, I'll give them two if they'll just get off my back. I think that would help. If they have one war goal, you're more happy to just wait until the Jacobins uh, Kick it, kicks some butt. Oh, um, yeah, well, but they, they did tend to come at me with fairly aggressive war goals, though. Yeah. Um, and, that, I mean, that takes us back to the diplomacy problems just a little bit, um, where Austria was bizarrely aggressive against me as Prussia. I mean, they were always on me. Yep. Um, but what was really weird is that then Britain, France, and Russia, and Sicily all just decided they had to come after me too. Like everybody was fighting a war of Prussian containment. Yep. And I had not expanded. Yeah. You know, and it, and nor was I weak. Like I had fought Austria to a complete standstill. Um and then England starts landing troops, I'm kicking their ass. And for some reason it's just like the AI decided that, you know, well, he's got to go. Um and I mean that's you know 
I, I appreciate challenge, but that was just it was it was really frustrating. Mm-hmm. They didn't add war goals, but it was bizarre to me that every great power in the world decided all at once that Prussia, which is pretty damn contained to begin with, needed to be contained. Yeah, there's so. a lot lot of wars of containment. Uh, and a war of containment is a way to force you to disarm. Uh, more than anything else. Yeah, it's a nasty, it's a nasty type of war because they, the peace terms are pretty bad. They are. It's a type of thing that you do against a country you really, really hate, uh, and you think you can beat one that's exhausted. Uh, in my case, it was generally Prussia, and occasionally Turkey. It always comes back to Prussia. Always comes back to Prussia. Prussia is, you know, nice and meaty, sitting there full of goods and educated people. There are, there are good mean- people to conquer. I don't think Victoria really works or hangs together as a strategy game. Uh, and yet, for all that, I mean, I admire it, and I even kind of like it. And I don't know how much of that is due to the fact that I just I really adore this period. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I honestly do think it's cool that this slots right in there between the end of uh, Napoleon's ambition expansion for EU uh, three and the beginning of Hearts of Iron. <laughs> so they pretty much they pretty much now covered the modern period. Uh, it's beautiful, um, but you know, for all the problems I have with it, um, I'm glad it exists. And uh, you know, I think if you're on the fence about it, this is definitely something I I might wait on for a price drop. Uh, but just don't go in expecting a, a great strategic or experience. So where would you expand this game? You know, they're going to expand it because oh, they expand Lord. everything. Uh, what would they fix when expand? Because they have things to patch. They have a lot of things to patch in this game. Yeah, I'd love to uh, actually get like you know a good six seven hour game going in this. Yeah, I I think something's wrong with you. I, have, I had no crashes at all. Rob, you're saying this is a, more of a model. Uh, we're just talking about this model than a game. Uh, a line I almost stole from my review, but that would have been a really bad bad thing to do. Uh, I think is probably pretty much right on the on the. On the nose. I think it is a good game. It is one I recommend uh, to people who are willing to put in the time to accept that some stuff's going to be out of their control. Um, but it is not something I recommend unequivocally. I don't think it has as much neat design stuff going on as Hearts of Iron 3 did. For all of its problems, Hearts of Iron 3 had some really original ideas about designing a war game that I thought worked quite well. Um, even though the game didn't always. And I caught some heat for that, but hey, I'll catch heat for stuff. It's part of the job. Speaking of catching heat, next week is episode 80. It is our question and answer show. So please, uh, if you have any questions, send them to me at troy.goodfellow at gmail.com or put them on my formspring if you want. That's just formspring.me slash troygoodfellow. Uh, I have some questions coming there that I've actually saved uh, for the podcast because I think they actually work for all of us to answer. You can get as many of us as they can as possible. You can send questions right up until the moment we record, which is probably going to be you know Monday or Tuesday at 8 p.m. If you uh, send them Tuesday morning and we've already recorded, too bad. Uh, them's the breaks, but we kind of play this by ear. So uh, next week, it is a uh, question and answer show. And the week after that, we will be talking about Elemental. I'm getting a lot of people asking if we're going to be talking about Elemental War of Magic. We will. I'm putting quite a bit of time in it right now. Finally started playing it. And we will hopefully have a good discussion uh, about what we like, what we don't like. And Brad Wardell will be here in two weeks' time to talk about some of the development history of it uh, for a little bit. So, Julian, Rob, as always. 
Thanks for having us. Thank you. Good night, everyone.